This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk from Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. We are recording this episode in May 2020 amidst the COVID-19 epidemic. As the Commonwealth cautiously begins to reopen, high levels of anxiety remain. Though we are more than three months into the epidemic, we cannot reliably estimate who is sick. For this reason, testing is widely seen as an essential element of efforts to both control the spread of the disease and reopen the economy in a way that gives businesses and consumers confidence. My guest today is Hanno Mamushka, Chief Executive Officer of Alva 10, a precision medicine firm in Cambridge. Hanna's expertise in precision medicine is built on a comprehensive knowledge of the medical testing industry. Hannah will share with us her views on why we were slow to develop a test, where we are now in the Commonwealth, and what the future of testing must offer. Joining me from Pioneer is Bill Smith, Life Sciences Fellow. Bill will share his perspectives on how the COVID-19 epidemic has exposed policy shortcomings in testing, and how reform could improve the cost and efficacy of the entire pharma industry. Welcome back to the show, Bill. Thanks, Joe. My pleasure. So, Bill, I understand you've worked with Hannah and have great respect for her work in the field of testing. Uh, yeah, Joe. Uh, my background is in the pharmaceutical industry. I'm not a, an expert on diagnostics, and I've gotten to know Hannah over the last couple of years, and she's taught me a great deal about the industry, and she's... Uh, She's a very informed, uh, sharp, and interesting speaker. So I think, uh, I think we're going to have a good broadcast today. Okay, great. So when we return, we'll be joined by Alva 10 Chief Executive Officer, Hannah Mamushka. We're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi with Bill Smith of Pioneer. We're now joined by Hannah Mamushka, CEO of Alva 10. Welcome to the show, Hannah. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. Uh, hi, Hannah. Um, great to have you on. Uh, I want to ask the first question about the diagnostics industry generally. Um, you know, we're sort of in a high renaissance as far as the life sciences is concerned, and one would have thought, given our knowledge of genetics and other things, that the diagnostic industry would be very robust, uh, similar to the biotech industry. Um, but that's not what we're seeing, and many investment advisors actually recommend against investing in, in diagnostics companies. Talk a little bit about the challenges in the marketplace uh, for diagnostics. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's, uh, it's an amazing time from a technical perspective for diagnostics. You know, we have the ability to do everything from really specifically capture a sample, isolate a sample, interrogate material. Um, but it, for investors, it's really difficult to justify investing in diagnostics because the return on their investment is so uncertain. You know, despite the fact that we have these technological capabilities, diagnostic testing in the U.S. is largely paid for via reimbursement after a test is performed, but because of a variety of historical and antiquated and mostly bureaucratic reasons, um, figuring out who's going to pay for a test, how much they're going to pay, especially for a new test, is 
unclear. And it's generally assumed that a, a new test developer is going to have to float on the market for 18 months or longer without getting paid uh, before they're able to determine if they're going to get paid and how much they're going to get paid. And, you know, for investors, that's just untenable. You know, and even if a test is approved by the FDA, that doesn't guarantee reimbursement. Whereas on the drug side, once a drug is approved by the FDA, uh, it, there's a requirement for that to be covered by Medicare and for uh, commercial payers as well. Hannah, you've done a great job framing the challenges that are uh, abundant in the uh, diagnostics or testing field in general. Uh, bring us to current day, 2020. We're in the midst of a COVID-19 epidemic. We're now more than two months, almost three months into the epidemic. Why has it taken so long to develop adequate tests for this disease? Is it a technical challenge? Is this an unusual disease to test for? Or is it a procedural or governmental or regulatory challenge that, that, that has caused this delay? Well, I think that there were several challenges. I mean, one, you know, setting up the framework that I just described as far as investment, we haven't really incentivized the diagnostic industry to be proactive or enable them to be proactive, whether you're a small lab or where you're a large reference lab. If you can't find a way to get reimbursed for your tests, then you don't have an incentive to be continuously looking ahead and developing new tests. Um, you know, as far as COVID-19, there were a lot of mistakes that were made, both operational and technical. Um, on the virus testing side, you know, at some point in the December timeframe when we started globally to understand that there was a virus out there that was causing unusually severe symptoms and it didn't look like other viruses, um, it was determined by science by scientists that this looked like a novel virus um, and that it needed to be sequenced to fully understand the genetic makeup. And uh, that was completed, that was published, which is fairly typical, that was published and shared in the global scientific community in January so that scientists could understand each piece of the genetic code of the virus and understand what made it different, what made it novel, and what has made it, for some people, um, such a significant health risk. And from that information, we can start to use it to distill it down and develop diagnostic tests. And usually what happens is that that sequencing information becomes available. Public health labs around the world immediately start using it. Um, most of these labs develop tests um, using a technology called PCR, which is a lot a lot faster than sequencing. It's much cheaper. It's rapidly available. Um, and we would start developing these tests. And, you know, generally the CDC is actually at the forefront of this. The CDC has always been thought of as being one of the best, most highly regarded technical labs in the world at this type of technical test development. But somewhere along the way, the CDC made a mistake. And when the CDC first started testing the COVID-19 test that they developed, they realized that they weren't getting the concordant results. They couldn't determine who actually had COVID-19 versus other viruses that, you know, circulate around in the winter. And so, you know, we were at a point where the CDC in Atlanta was the only facility in the U.S. authorized to conduct tests for the virus at a point when we were starting to have demand for the virus, which meant we didn't have any tests to start out with. And that just created a huge pipeline for detection um, that really became backlogged. You know, and at that point, a lot of the academic labs, particularly on the West Coast, where they were starting to, you know, understand that they had prevalence of the virus, were starting to develop their own tests under what's called a CLIA waiver. In the U.S. testing system, we essentially have two 
roughly parallel paths. You can either go through the FDA um, for test clearance or you can get a waiver through the CLIA system, which is the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendment that allowed certain labs that have a very high level of accreditation and high levels of training with their scientists to self-certify a test that is really in parallel to a full FDA review. And so these labs started developing their own tests as they realized that the test kits they were getting from the CDC weren't working. Um, but the CDC put out a notice saying that any labs performing these other tests, uh, not the ones provided by the CDC, would be shut down. You know, and at this point, we were, it was late February, and academic and commercial labs realized how behind we were in the U.S. with regards to testing capacity. We were effectively testing no one, even though the rest of the world was really starting to realize that this is a pandemic. You know, so they pressed hard for the FDA to relax this requirement um, and allow qualified labs to start testing sick people. You know, and this, this was the critical, critical period to understanding that COVID-19 was starting to spread in the community. Um, this was actually first shown, I believe, at the lab at the University of Washington. Um, and they used sort of a regulatory loophole that allowed them to test samples that they had taken from patients that were not being tested by the test uh, qualified by the CDC um, under, you know, a research purposes sample. And they showed that COVID-19 was spreading in the community um, completely undetected. And that, that was really what changed things, you know. That was at the end of February, I think it was February 29th, when the FDA finally granted a waiver to allow labs to start developing their own tests and get certified. But if you start on February 29th with just the FDA saying, okay, now you can go start developing, there's going to be a lag time, you know, before they can start scaling up to the capacity of thousands and millions of tests that we need in the U.S. And, you know, we're still working to get caught up there. So uh, when we're talking about testing, that's, that's a chilling account of, uh, uh, of uh, an important delay uh, that will have consequences for years to come. Um, when we're talking about testing, let me ask a very basic question. Are we talking about testing to see if someone is sick or if someone has uh, exposure to antibodies? So that's a great question. Um, you know, there are two, well, now there are really three types of testing that you're going to see out there. Um, the first, which is still, I think, the most important one, is the molecular test to figure out who is infected with the virus, regardless of whether they're showing symptoms. You know, these are molecular tests that detect the actual genetic material from the virus to figure out uh, if a patient is contagious and should be should be quarantined and this tells us you know where the virus is how prevalent it is it tells us locally if there are hot spots in a school um, coming from a meeting like the infamous pudge meeting if it's contained in a nursing home it also tells us how prevalent the disease is and how infectious it is we really don't have an idea of what the true case fatality rate is or really how severe COVID-19 is until we're testing people people who are asymptomatic as well. Because if we're only testing people who are really, really sick, we're going we're gonna to alter those numbers. Um, and it's going to look maybe more severe than it actually is, not that it isn't severe. Um, and without that widespread testing, we just don't have any idea. We're just guessing. 
Um, and then on the other side of that is the antibody testing. And the antibody testing is important because it begins to tell us how many people have been infected with the virus. So how many of those asymptomatic people that didn't get tested in the February, March, April, now May timeframe, um, were exposed to the virus and did develop antibodies, which means that they had it. What we don't understand from that yet is if it means it, whether or not you're immune. Um, because this is a novel virus, we just haven't had enough information yet to fully understand if someone who has had the virus is immune from ever getting it again, is immune for a shorter period of time. Um, these are things that we're looking to understand globally as clinical trials that are underway. Um, and that will really inform also the vaccine development and how high the antibody level and what the presentation looks like to really confirm for immunity more broadly. So Hannah, let's, uh, let's talk about testing beyond just those two tests, presence of the virus and antibodies. Uh, if you had an extremely robust diagnostic industry, couldn't you be developing tests to figure out who's vulnerable to the virus, for example, what, what underlying conditions were important uh, and people might want to avoid the workplace, uh, people who might have a genetic predisposition to get very sick from the virus, even if they're younger, there's a lot of things we don't understand. And what kind of role could testing play beyond just testing for the virus and testing for antibodies? Yeah, that's a fantastic question, Bill. And it would be so ideal uh, if we had the ability to scale that. I mean, I'm excited about some of the news about vaccines that are being developed, and I'm, I'm very hopeful. But the reality is we're going to be in the stage that we're in for a while. And, you know, we understand that the majority of people who are exposed to COVID-19 don't get catastrophically sick, but we don't really understand why those that do, do. Um, there's certainly correlations between uh, certain comorbidities and predispositions. Um, there's certainly correlation with obesity and heart problems and, and lung disease. But then there's also a, in you, you hear about these stories about these young people, you know, 25-year-old marathoner, uh, you know, a friend from my town, a 38-year-old mom ended up on a ventilator, um, marathoner, really healthy, no pre-existing conditions. Ideally, we would want to start looking at and understanding the genetic and genomic differences in people who do really well and are asymptomatic, what do those pa patients look like? And the patients who have really significant symptoms, uh, how do we identify those? How do we screen for those patients up front? How do we identify that certain patients who or certain people who may not obviously have a, a predisposition to having a severe reaction to COVID-19 should actually be more careful than they would think. Um, and then how do we accelerate treatment for those patients? If you are known to have a genetic predisposition to COVID-19, does that allow you to get tested faster, get treatment faster, um, you know, maybe get accelerated use to some of the drugs that are looking so promising in this space, we need those tools to be able to stratify the population and determine, you know, which is the best course of treatment um, based on your genetic and your genomic makeup. Hannah, our listeners know that in an earlier episode, we did a, a focus on the massive rollout of testing and tracing here in the Commonwealth uh, with Partners in Health. Naturally, testing and tracing uh, go hand in glove. 
How do the current tests and uh, the quick turnaround have an impact on overall management of the disease? Are our current tests sufficient in speed to support an effective tracing regimen? Yeah, I really appreciated that episode, actually. Um, I learned a lot about how they're setting up and facilitating contact tracing, and I think it's going to be incredibly important uh, moving forward over the next few months. So we have tests. We have two categories of tests right now that will tell you if you are positive for the coronavirus. The first type of test is the molecular test, which is run on a PCR machine. Most of these tests will get your results within 24 hours. Um, they only take they take less than an hour really to run on a machine. It's just a question of getting the sample from wherever you're collecting the sample to the laboratory, getting it onto the machine, reporting the results and getting those back to you. Um, if a sample needs to get shipped, then it may take a little bit longer, but those test results should be available within 24 hours. And some of the large employers that we've been talking to as they've been thinking about um, how to get their employees to go back to work, they've been thinking about it, you know, if you take a test at the end of the day, the results should be in the next morning to know if you're, if you're safe to go back to work, if you're, if you're cleared to go to work. The next category of tests uh, that is emerging into the market, and I believe um, Quidel, which received emergency use authorization for their rapid test uh, earlier this month is the only one to have it so far, are antigen tests, which are actually, uh, you can sort of think of it analogous to a home pregnancy test. It's a test that can be done without a lot of, uh, without a significant manipulation. A patient would actually be able to see the result in a kit that they would have in their home, at their workplace, maybe at the airport, maybe at a sporting event, um, something that would get you results very rapidly. I think the Quidel test gets you results in, in 15 minutes. The Quidel test is the first one to get out there. The only issue with that test is that they recommend that you confirm any negative tests with the standard molecular PCR test, which of course slows things down. So that's it's a good start, but I think that there will be, I know that there are several other companies that are pursuing emergency youth authorization for those rapid point of care tests. And those will be the most efficient, of course, in terms of contact tracing, because ideally what we want to get to is a point where when you get a phone call saying that you've been exposed to someone who's tested positive for COVID-19, you want to know right away if you too are positive um, and how long you need to quarantine. And right now, the suggestion is this that they're going to call you and tell you but maybe not get you a test and we want to get to the point where when you get that phone call you're able to get a, a test and get the results immediately um, so that you know for you and your family and whether or not you're able to go to work if you're if you're positive for COVID as well yeah but also for the economy itself uh, if you can get a 10-minute test you could uh, test people on the way into the hospital you could test uh uh, people going to the meatpacking plant. Um, there's a lot of people that could go to work very safely um, if you could know right away with a definitive test. And so hopefully something like that's on the horizon. Absolutely. I mean, you think about it for boarding an airplane or you think about it for school or, you know, any situation where you would have a lot of people together in a close space. Um, those type of tests are going to be in tremendously high demand. The real question mark with them is how 
accurate do they need to be? Um, because, of course, if you're going to be qualifying a patient to board an airplane, go into a classroom, go back to work, um, you want to be fairly confident that if a patient tests negative, that they are definitively negative um, and that it's not a false negative for the test. So there's still a bit of learning that's being done on the use of those tests, but I'm, I'm hopeful that they'll be available in the near term. So I'm glad you brought up the near term. Uh, this week, uh, the governor uh, started to reopen the economy in a phased approach. Uh, so we're here now. Uh, as a, an expert in, in testing, uh, what would the average man on the street, the person going through the CVS drive-through in the 10 locations, what would uh, what does that test look like now? Uh, how accurate and how long does the turnaround take? Yeah, so most of those tests right now are still the standard molecular tests, and most of them are still going to be the nasal swab. Uh, so they will either uh, give you a nasal swab for you to perform yourself, um, someone who's uh, wearing personal protective gear um, will give you a sterile swab, cotton swab, um, that you'll, they'll use. They'll instruct you how to do it to swab your nasal cavity. Then they'll put it in a solution um, in a container that's gonna, then going to be shipped to a local laboratory. And you'll probably receive the test results within a day or two. Um, I know that there have been some backlogs from some of these tests, but these are these are the standard um, PCR tests that are run on a fairly rapid basis. It's, it's more the logistics of getting the results back. I know that there are some companies that have been working on app development that would allow you to get more instantaneous results or as, as soon as the result is completed. Um, but as far as I'm understanding, that's really in the next day or so that you'll get the results. So, Hannah, I, I want to ask about policymakers. We have some policymakers, both state and federal, that sometimes tune into our broadcast. And we've talked a little bit about missteps at FDA and CDC. But what would you say, particularly from a testing perspective, are the, uh, what should be the focus of these policymakers moving forward? What could they improve in the short term that would really help us not only prepare for what our current challenges is, but future challenges? Well, I think this pandemic has really brought to light how critical the diagnostic testing industry is. Um, you know, in Massachusetts, we have a really robust uh, laboratory network and a really robust, as you know, research environment. Um, but all have been hobbled pretty significantly, either by lack of clarity around regulations for the development of these tests. Um, I don't think these tests are not, a test for a virus is not technically difficult to develop. What is challenging is when there are not clear regulatory guidelines that are established up front by the FDA in order to know what the parameters for a test need to be developed around. So needing to understand exactly what the sensitivity and specificity parameters are are really key for a test. And then the other side is reimbursement. You know, Massachusetts, um, on the Medicare side, Massachusetts, all states have their own local Medicare administrative contractor that makes decisions for local CLIA laboratories. So the, the clinical laboratories that may be interested in developing a test um, to address a particular public health concern are under the jurisdiction of the local Medicare administrative contractor as opposed to an in vitro diagnostic test, which would go through national Medicare. 
And interestingly, in Massachusetts, we actually have one of the least progressive Medicare administrative contractors. Um, it's administrated by a group called NGS. And they don't have a clear policy on how they look at new diagnostic tests or how they reimburse new diagnostic tests. And what actually that actually means is that frequently when lab developers in Massachusetts want to develop a test, they actually go outside of Massachusetts to commercialize it. And so as an example, a couple of the diagnostic developers that are working on COVID um, and work specifically on virus testing relocated to Southern California because their laboratory reimbursement infrastructure is much more straightforward. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily easier. It's just that it's clearer to understand what the metrics are and what the requirements are going to be for payment than Massachusetts. And so one thing that would really enable better diagnostic and more rapid diagnostic technology development in Massachusetts for the benefit of Massachusetts residents, um, as well as for the whole Massachusetts ecosystem, is to be able to streamline the process for getting Medicare coverage um, through the Massachusetts administrative contractor, which right now is, is really a challenge. And it causes companies to move out of state. Hannah, it's disappointing to learn that Massachusetts isn't the ideal place to build a uh, diagnostics firm or uh, develop diagnostic technology. Uh, this is a policy podcast. We believe many of our uh, legislators or policy um, makers listen to the show. So in your opinion, what could we change to make Massachusetts a better place for creating firms and technology uh, in the diagnostic field? Well, I think the easiest thing to do would actually be to, jo to join Moldex. Um, so Moldex is a cooperative group um, that was started by a Medicare administrative contractor on the West Coast, Palmetto, um, and now administers uh, diagnostic reimbursement decision-making uh, for 28 of the 50 states um, and covers uh, a lot of the jurisdictions where you find the majority of the laboratories, including California, Washington State, and North Carolina, where the majority of the, of the clinical and reference laboratories are. And that would be the easiest way for Massachusetts to be able to participate in the development and research, uh, as well as the commercialization of novel diagnostic technology really making an impact in healthcare. Okay, we're coming close to the end of our time together. I want to ask you, Hannah, as Chief Executive Officer, CEO of Alva 10, uh, what's it been like to manage a firm in the middle of a lockdown? How have you been able to steer the firm, even though we all have to essentially work remotely? So it's been very interesting uh, to steer the company during the lockdown. We had uh, some of our graduate interns start this week, and I haven't met any of them, which is a really interesting position to be in. Um, but, you know, on a larger level, I started the company almost five years ago to really bring a better understanding of the value of diagnostics in our healthcare system and the opportunity for improving both economics and clinical outcomes with the better utilization of diagnostic technology. And unfortunately, the COVID situation has really actually made our point for us because the pandemic that we're in right now would have been very, very different if we had a transparent and clear way for diagnostic developers to develop, commercialize, and get paid for diagnostic tests back in 
in January and February. Um, and this pulls all the way through in all of healthcare. You know, if we were thinking about if, we, if you think about the development of diagnostic tools in order to figure out both who's going to do well with COVID and who's not going to do well with COVID, you could think about that across all disease areas. You can think about that in heart failure. You can think about that in multiple sclerosis. You know, using diagnostic tools to figure out which patients are going to do better on which therapy and really using genetic molecular information to target therapy decisions is really key to advancing healthcare, improving economics, and improving clinical outcomes for patients. Well, that was very informative. I'm sure our listeners appreciate your deep knowledge in this field. Um, it gives me chills to he hear you say that with better testing, um, a lot of this pain and suffering might have been avoided. So uh, I can't imagine a better case for uh, better testing, uh, for your expertise, and of course, for Alva 10, which I hope uh, does well. Thank you very much for joining us here today, Hannah. Thank you so much for having me. Bill, I thought Hannah was clear and laser focused on both the challenges of getting tests into the system and the promises of large scale testing with accurate and timely results. What, what, what did you think of Hannah's conversation? Uh, she was an outstanding guest, uh, Joe. She really, really was strong. She explained very clearly why the diagnostic industry faces market challenges. It's not as robust as it could be. She explained some of the faults that the government made early on. Uh, in not getting testing going. Uh, and she, she also provided some solutions. Towards the end, she started talking about some things that Massachusetts specifically could do to help improve the testing environment. So uh, she was a great guest, very informative, very clear. Uh, well, thank you again. I, I, I thought this was a great show. I appreciate you joining me again on Hubwonk. Um, I hope you and yours stay uh, safe and healthy. My pleasure. This has been Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. If you enjoyed this episode, there are three ways you can support the show. You can give us a five-star rating on iTunes, you can write a review, and you can subscribe to our weekly show release. I welcome your comments, suggestions, and ideas at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Hubwonk is a podcast of Pioneer Institute. If you wish to directly support the show, you can contribute to our production at pioneerinstitute.org backslash Hubwonk. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. <laughs>